Welcome to Weird Sounds, an audio companion to the Boston Art Book Fair and Boston Center for the Arts. I'm your host, Oliver Mack. And I'm also your host, Randy Hopkins. Oliver and I are the co-founders of the Boston Art Book Fair, which has brought us into contact with an incredible array of artists and creative thinkers. We want to share some of these conversations with you. And that's exactly why we started Weird Sounds, as a podcast to document the ways that people are making art all around us these days. We have so many questions for artists because we love hearing about the ideas and images, inspirations and aspirations behind their practices. And we know you will too. Hi, friends. Weird Sounds is looking forward to the in-person return of the Boston Art Book Fair, taking place this year on November 4th, 5th, and 6th in the Cyclorama at Boston Center for the Arts. That's right, Randy. We're back in person, and it's got to be one of the largest events of its kind in the Northeast, and therefore the known universe. Boston Art Book Fair is free to the public on Saturday and Sunday, and we also have a preview party Friday evening, November 4th. Proceeds from the preview party help support artists from the fair and keep it free to the public. Check out bossonartbookfair.com and get yourself a preview ticket. See you there. Hi, friends. Today, Oliver and I chatted with Ingru Chen, the founder and CEO of Praise Shadows Art Gallery, a hybrid space that opened in Boston's Coolidge Corner neighborhood in 2021. The gallery serves as a lively space for exhibitions by emerging and mid-career contemporary artists, a retail space for art books and accessibly priced work made by artists, and a platform for mentorship for young talent in the greater Boston area. Their work is local, global, and virtual. Listen in as we chat with Ng about topics ranging from NFTs to her landlord in Coolidge Corner, and of course, about her table at the upcoming Boston Art Book Fair. So we have uh, Ng Ru Chen from Praise Shadows Art Gallery with uh, Randy and myself right now. And we'd love to talk about uh, what's making your art gallery one of possibly the most hotly anticipated spaces in New England right now. Dang. Okay. <laughs> Thanks for that lead up. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it's really so nice to be here with both of you. And thank you for putting this together and putting the art book fair together, too. We're really excited to participate this year. Yeah, we're so excited. This is our first year having you in it. And I think this is just like great timing. Also coincides really nicely, I think, with the fact that you've opened up a new like book annex as part of your space. So we could talk about that, too. But yeah, I want to know everything about Prey Shadows. And then I want to know everything that draws you to art books. Yeah. Um, so Prey Shadows opened December of 2021. Uh, we're uh, almost about to hit our two-year mark, which is so weird. I sometimes think we're still like a year old. And and then yet other people ask me like, oh, you've been open for five years, right? You know, and I, it's just the, I think the COVID timeline has really affected how we, you know, think of the space. And um, also some, maybe sometimes also it's affected the speed at which things have happened because I really didn't know what to expect when I opened it. I just knew that, it was an opportunity that I'd never anticipated for myself before. And so I will say that to start, you know, I have a 
20 year plus long career in the arts, but primarily in museums, uh, auction houses, a design company. I was always involved in the creative world, but I did that almost exclusively in New York. And so opening a gallery in New York was not in my wheelhouse. It was not, you know, I didn't have the financial capacity for it. It also just wasn't that interesting to me then because there were so many galleries in New York. Like, why would I open another one? And so what happened was that in uh, late 2019, I moved back to Boston where I grew up and uh, I brought, you know, my husband and my two kids and we came back about six months before the pandemic. And it was primarily for the family. So I was still going back to New York every single month for about a week. You know, some people didn't even know I left New York. It just like didn't really matter. And so Prey Shadows began as a consultancy in 2018. And I was already working with a lot of these artists that I now represent. And the way I was looking at my, um, kind of relationship with these artists was that, you know, some of them had gallery representation, some of them didn't, some were in the Whitney Biennial, some, you know, have been very prominently shown. But the major factor that kind of drew all of them together was that I noticed that there was still a lot of kind of financial insecurity in their practices, you know, especially if you're living in a city as expensive as New York, having gallery representation, for example, is just not enough for some artists, you know, you could have that as a, a brand in your CV or a res- or your resume, but you know, unless you have a show, or your output is a certain type, or your work is a certain. Like right now, if you're a figurative painter, great, you know that that market is going to do very well for you, most likely. But I would have artists come up to me, and they would have been in some very prominent triennial or biennial or exhibition, and they were like, "Hey, I hear that you're." working with artists in a different way. And the way was that I saw that we could work around and kind of supplement that gallery system by looking at partnerships, commissions, um, you know, licensing deals. And a lot of this came from a job I had right before, which was at a design company called Tatley. And at Tatley, we licensed artwork from professional artists and designers, and we gave them pretty significant uh, royalties. And so we, you know, I think I was there for four years. By our fourth year, we had given out more than a million dollars in royalties to artists. And this is by selling temporary tattoos. Wow. (laughs) When I started at Tatley, um, the founder of Tatley is a very prominent design person. And um, her name is Tina Roth Eisenberg. She has a huge design blog called Swiss Miss. You know, that was her world. I was one of the early hires and my whole world was fine art. And so I realized that like, you know, people at the, at the office would talk about this really famous designer or illustrator. And I had no idea who these people were. And on the flip side, I would, I remember someone saying like, who's this Duchamp person? That's just, you know, like they were like, you know, ridiculing Duchamp. And I, I was like, what, you don't know this person. So my job there was really to bridge those worlds. And in my capacity there, I was head of partnerships and marketing And so I ended up working with like every single museum. We, uh, you know, we had a partnership with Art Balls in Miami, with Vogue, with um, 
Eric Carle, and then the Gorilla Girls called, you know, and they're like, we love what you do. Can we do a product with you guys? And so I loved that we were able to pay out these commissions or, or royalties to artists, and it was all passive income, right? They didn't have to create anything new for the most part. Um, they were taking existing artwork or designs and then making something that uh, could be sold. And, you know, some artists were paying their rent every month with these royalties. So when I started Pray Shadows, it was to take a similar model or to take that lesson from that job and say, how can the fine art world also adapt? And one of my first clients as well was a blockchain company. And this was 2018, you know, a couple years before everything blew up with the NFT world. But uh, I worked with uh, a company called snark.art. I was the chief marketing officer. And we looked at blockchain as a laboratory. Uh, how can artists use that technology in creative ways instead of just, you know, selling a, a GIF or a digital asset. We were working with the artist Eve Sussman, who had a really tremendous work at the 2004 Whitney Biennial. And this is a video installation piece called 89 Seconds uh, at Alcazar. And every single edition had sold to major museums. But, you know, as a video installation work, it was very rarely shown. So Eve took her last AP gave it over to Snark, the company I was working with, and we basically like shattered it into 2000 pieces. And so everyone can own uh, a 20 by 20 pixel version of that video. And together as a collective community, we can screen it together. And what's interesting is that that's also kind of this organic artwork because over time people might forget their password or you know their, their security codes for their digital wallets, or they might forget entirely. So over time, this video will start to have like more and more black holes in the video. Um, and that interested the artists as well. So I was looking at new technologies. I was looking at alternative revenue streams. Um, so I did commissions with some of the artists. You know, I had a project in Shanghai with the artist. Uh, we were working with a major sneaker brand, actually, <laughs> that was really interested in talking. Well, we did start talking to the artist. And that meeting was March 8th, 2020. And then like literally, you know, two days later, three days later, the pandemic just shut everything down. And I have two kids in school. So I, you know, was just focused on homeschooling. I had a few clients, um, but I really then settled into Boston because I couldn't go back to New York. And I started to learn a lot more about the ecosystem here in Boston, which again, I grew up here, but I didn't grow up with a family that like, you know, collected art or knew very much about art. So a lot of this was my own kind of adult learning as a college student and then as a professional. And I kind of realized that every single time I would come back to Boston um, to visit my family, I, I almost never, I definitely never went to a gallery. I did have a gallery internship in college, which almost made me stop studying art history. <laughs> uh, and that was at a not to be named gallery on Newbury street. And they're still, they're totally fine. But I was like, Oh, I don't, that's not really for me. You know, I don't want to sit and just like sell objects all day. And, um, there was not very much kind of interaction with a living artist. I had been the PR director at PS1 MoMA also. So like my, you know, my life had been 
loving working with living artists and um, helping them grow and helping them, you know, in my PR capacity, get as much attention to their work as possible. And so I was like, why do people not really know about the galleries? I didn't know about SOA before I moved to Boston. You know, I didn't, I had been to uh, Camilo's space. I'd been to Samson, but like 10 years ago. And when I did, I didn't know it as SOA. I just went because I went to the gallery. So that was interesting to me. I also was fascinated by all of the artists in Boston who, you know, live here, work here, have life here, family here, and just kind of seeing how different it was from, for example, New York artists who often don't have the same level of like job security, for example. You know, a lot of artists in Boston are able to teach because we have so many schools here, you know, and by that they have perhaps health insurance and, you know, they're able to buy a home or they're able to just like take care of their lives a little bit differently than uh, the artists that I knew in New York. So um, that was in my mind. And then over the pandemic, I was also doing these daily Instagram live talks with people just to check in. And, you know, I remember having the first guy from Boston that I interviewed was Paul Ha from MIT List. And he, you know, he and I were talking about Boston and it was really great. And then Michelle Miller Fisher from the MFA was another person. And I just started thinking like, I think Boston could kind of use a different kind of space. And this is also, you know, intersecting with what was happening after George Floyd was murdered. And I, as a communication specialist in my past life, um, I've been asked by a lot of places to kind of weigh in or be part of that, uh, the messaging effort. And I think in some ways, because I'm not black. I'm not white. I'm kind of like this, you know, as an Asian American, it's a very different kind of space and identity, but it was very, and sometimes, sometimes it got frustrating because I realized that like, you can put out messaging, but at the, the core of the issue really is your program. You know, who are you showing and, um, are your intentions, the right intentions for your space and for the artist. And so all of that was happening. And then in June of 2020, I'm walking in the neighborhood that I live in, that I grew up in, that my kids go to school in, which is Coolidge Corner in Brookline. And this space was, was up for lease. And I just like, I don't know, it was so weird. I was like, maybe I should open a gallery. And I had never said that to myself before. And this was, you know, a couple, just like we had just started reopening after lockdown. Like we, this was very, very much in the thick of the pandemic, but I remember seeing like, you know, everyone was out and people were like walking around with booksmith bags. People were shopping at the vinyl records st store. Um, the Coolidge Quarter Theater was about, you know, was going through this like really beautiful renovation and that's located across the street from the gallery. And I thought about this neighborhood, which is the one I grew up in. And I was like, you know, this is a great neighborhood. It's very pedestrian friendly. There's so many great indie shops. It reminded me of like Harvard Square when I was a kid, you know, much more vibrant. I, I like going through Harvard Square right now is very sad to me. I almost never go there. And then I learned that the landlord for this gallery space, he owns half of that entire block. And the majority of those businesses have been there for decades. And they were all telling me that this guy is the best landlord you'll ever get. So I, I was very interested because who like, especially coming from New York, whoever here, who hears that, you know, like <laughs> no one has the best landlord ever. So long story short, I meet Stephen DeMarco, my landlord. And he, on our first meeting was like, 
you got to believe in yourself. <laughs> he, told, he was basically like, yeah, if you want to do this, you could do this. I have other people interested, but I like you and I like your idea. So, you know, and I, I didn't know how much a commercial lease was, um, but he was extremely, extremely fair with me. He gave me a five-year lease. I called up my friend, Sam Bachelor, who was an architect and had just designed the Mass Art Museum. And I was like, Sam, you want to help me? And he, he and I both went to the elementary school half a block away. So he knew exactly what I was talking about. Um, he pitched in and helped. I got a great contractor and then we opened, you know, in December and by, um, especially like the moment I knew I was going to have the gallery, I had the exhibition roster and uh, schedule set for like basically two years. Cause I knew that there were so many artists, um, either in Boston or New York or elsewhere that I wanted to show. And yeah, and now we're here. So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a, a phenomenal, but really interesting ride. And, uh, I, I'm so thankful for the, the support from the Boston community for, um, kind of just getting us on our legs and running and sprinting, I guess it's been a sprint for sure. That's absolutely fascinating that you started a gallery with no plan to during, <laughs> uh, the pandemic. It's absolutely, yeah. it's, it's mind blowing to me. Yeah, I, you know, I feel um, like in some ways, I don't want to say Dustin, that seems weird, because, um, you know, we have many, I, I think a human person has like, many, many careers in their lives. Sometimes, you know, we're not like, uh, we're not here to do one thing. But from like, all the jobs I've had in nonprofits in marketing in this licensing and retail, uh, it all kind of comes together here. And I did know one thing. I knew that I didn't want to work in a bureaucratic environment anymore. And that was something that I really took from my last job at Tatley where, you know, it was a startup. I was, uh, I could, I had so much autonomy. I could do whatever I wanted. And, um, it would have been really hard for me to like go to a museum and be a PR director again. You know, um, that wasn't of interest to me. So it was kind of like, well, what else am I going to do? If this guy's going to give me this great deal on a space and I have these artists who many of whom have never shown in Boston, but have shown in museums all over the place, you know, like this could work. Um, I was also really fascinated by the fact that it seems like there are tons of Boston collectors. I mean, you know, maybe not as many at all as like New York or, you know, um, or I don't know, LA, but there are significant collectors in Boston and lots and lots of patrons, but mostly there's so many museums that collect and, um, have outstanding, you know, world-class collections. So I was very interested in getting, um, kind of, uh, getting involved with the institutions and learning more from the curators of like, what, what are they looking for and, um, what are their goals for their acquisitions? And I'm super lucky because, you know, we've worked with probably every museum <laughs> at this point in Boston and, um, and, you know, I, our second show, we had an MFA acquisition. So like it just worked. And every single time we have artists or, you know, art people from New York, for example, who come, they love what they see. They love the support. The curators in Boston 100% show up. They are engaged. They ask questions. That just doesn't happen very often. You know, uh, it's not because the curators in other cities are not interested. It's just like there's so much going on in a place like New York. Whereas I think in Boston, I, I feel like we are now, you know, pretty well connected to that 
curatorial ecosystem and um, can have conversations that are very real, very, I don't know how to say, like, very real. And I am not afraid to be like, hey, I, you know, maybe you don't know me, but this is what I'm presenting to you. And this is something I think you should consider. And the majority of the time, maybe all the time we get a response, you know, and that's all I need. Like, even if it's not the right thing for your collection, um, I like that I'm able to have this relationship with the curators and learn like, Oh, maybe, maybe for this show that I'm doing in three years, like that might be something that, you know, you and I can talk about. And that feels really good. You know, it's a nice, it's a nice environment. Yeah. How do you, do you, I don't know how to phrase this without, I, this is just really fascinating and you're being so generous with, sharing like really the thought process, the complicated thought process and path of how somebody comes to do something like this. And it seems like your openness and creativity and your experience like leads you to make really good choices. You have a network that's really real, your your friends, your kids' friends, the landlord, as well as, you know, museum and um, gallery people all over the world, it sounds like. I'm curious, though, because I don't think every gallery or artist does feel like the curatorial world, museum world in Boston is as accessible as you're finding it. And I I find myself wondering, like, is that because you have such an exceptional product and they recognize that? Or is that is that also because it's kind of a moment where everybody did pause and kind of the weirdness of the moment that you chose, which Oliver just kind of mentioned like maybe that actually was an incredible opportunity too, where yeah. museums, you know, you couldn't just like run to Venice or to, you know, the Whitney Biennial to find your new, your next artist. People really started looking at what's right around them. Yeah, Randy, that was 100% true. Um, mm-hmm. I remember having, during one of my Instagram live talks, I spoke with a curator who at that time was um, based out of Pittsburgh. And he did say that, they are very much looking more locally and that they wanted to focus, you know, because they were they considered themselves like a second second market city. You know, they weren't New York, they weren't L.A. And so he I mean, he was saying, like, yeah, I, you know, I'm going to do more studio visits with local artists. We want to f- focus more locally. And that I definitely felt like was an opportunity. You know, if if I'm going to show if I'm going to have a space here in Boston, whether I show artists from Boston or from elsewhere, I think the curators would be interested in coming. And the other thing, too, was that especially in the first few shows, a lot of the museums were still closed. So like I remember Sarah Montrose coming to our first show and she was like, I haven't been to a gallery in like six months. You know, I haven't been to my own galleries in six months at the museum. And, um, and she wasn't the only one. There were other museum folks who said the same because their campuses or their, um, their museums were still locked down. It was definitely a choice. Like I knew that that was an opportunity, but obviously like, you know, I wouldn't have opened a gallery just because of that. There would have had to have been much more of an infrastructure for how, uh, our business was going to take off. Another thing that I also knew though, was that because of the pandemic, so many people were buying art online and people were, you know, some people were like, oh, but it's Boston art. Do people actually come? And A, first of all, people really do come. Like we have sold, you know, like five digit level paintings, artworks by walk-ins to our, our space. But we also know that people can be, you know, in, in Hong Kong, they can be in Germany, they can be in Mexico and, and buy work because that was just what was going to have to happen at that time. So um, we have had shows where like, 
nearly none of the work stays in Boston or we've had, you know, we've had a mix of both. It really depends on the artist. And, you know, I, I think that the background that I have in PR and marketing obviously helps because I was able to pretty effectively, like bring some amazing press to the gallery, um, for some of our very early shows. You know, I think the New York, yeah, the New York times covered our show in March of 2022, 2021. And, you know, and actually they covered it like three times. They did like three different things and it was a different time. It was, you know, when things were still locked down, but to be able to kind of tap into those relationships that I had in the past was very, very helpful for me. And I think to go back to your question about, you know, other galleries in Boston that might not feel the same. I mean, I can't, you know, I can't speak for them because I I don't know or run their spaces as well. I think that one of, you know, our our, one of our things is like, Hey, we're, we're new ish, you know, we were new. So that was exciting, but also we really were bringing like artists that you would see at the museum next. And, you know, our third show was Duke Riley, who's in that entire body of work is now at the Brooklyn museum. So, you know, we told all the people who came through you and Boston are seeing this first. Um, this is going to go on view in a major New York museum. We, at that time, we couldn't tell people which museum it was. But um, Duke is also like Boston born and raised and had never had a solo show here, which was shocking to both of us. So that was just one of those things. I was like, okay, it's about time, you know. Um, and I think people were like, yes, I'm so happy to finally see his work in person. And, you know, now we have collectors that like, got access to it first because it was in Boston. And then they get to go to this amazing show in New York city and, you know, feel really proud to have supported this artist in the show. I love it. Yeah. Thank you. That's Mm -hmm. is really, really interesting to hear. I think it's uh, it's remarkable how your past experience has set you up for so much ability to, you know, launch the gallery at this, this highest level. Cause you, mm. it, it's not like you built up to showing people who were collected by institutions. You started out the gate that way. Yeah. I remember one of the artists, like the first artist that was acquired by a museum, um, was Madeline Donahue, Madeline Donahue, who's a New York based artist, but she went to Tufts and got her, um, BFA at, um, the SMFA, but you know, the MFA bought her work and she was just, she was just delighted because honestly, like some of the work that we showed had been shown in New York. And I think sometimes it gets lost in this, in these kinds of environments where there is just so much going on. And, you know, maybe, you know, part of it too is like, it's a smaller pond here. So we are able to be more visible. I mean, we still work super hard and we still, you know, do like the, the, we still try and put out like the highest quality, um, you know, communications, our writing, our interface with our online viewing rooms, you know, we hire a professional photographer for every single show. Like, I don't know, you know, if every single gallery in Boston does that. And that is something that like I've taken from my time being the PR director at PS1. you like, I just have to do that. I have to have professional shots, because if you expect people to come through or, you know, to, if you expect to like trigger interest in the work and they're seeing it first through a a JPEG, make that JPEG really, really stunning and really beautiful. So I'm very detail oriented. And I also, um, you know, I think part of this is just like being good with people as well. And 
being someone that people like to chat with and hang out with. And, you know, I'm never pushy about what like I want you to buy. So, you know, I think that there's a lot of like creepy art dealers. <laughs> I'm sorry, but I think that, you know, there's, there's a lot of people who are just like art dealers, you know, they're literally just selling art and it's not really about the people. And I don't think I'm that kind of person. I'm always people first. And I want you to come and buy this work because, you know, if I'm representing or showing this artist, it, it means I care about them. And it means that like, they're part of a program that, you know, hopefully you would want to support as a collector. I hear that. And I know you were actually the first gallery I went to during the pandemic. So I, I echo what Sarah says. It, I, I'm not sure what it was that made me feel like that was going to be like a safe experience. But mm. I find that interesting too. But uh, something else that you're saying, I also think like that something that gives your gallery a certain kind of life and feels really connected to what people are experiencing right now, which I think, you know, people look to art to make that connection and feel like a part of something is your work with young people and the uh, really innovative stuff you're doing with young yeah, people. Yeah. The mentorship program. Yeah. So when I, I had this like prospectus, you know, when I, when I developed the idea for the gallery and it was like my pitch deck, I had all these great people as my advisors. Um, but the main thing was that I outlined the three, um, primary components of the gallery, one, which is the exhibition program two, which is the art shop and three, which is this mentorship program. And 100% this mentorship program grew out of that, internship I had on that Newberry street gal at that Newberry street gallery that made me, um, go to college the next month and say, I don't think I want to do art history anymore. Um, and it was only because I took a, a class that changed my mind that, you know, I did continue on this path. So, um, you know, and part of that was, I remember I had to work four jobs that summer, you know, I tutored like, uh, an SAT. I was like an SAT tutor. I, I taught music. I worked at a coffee shop or worked at beans and Chestnut Hill, you know, like there were so many things I did just to take this unpaid internship that was extremely unfulfilling. And, I have thought about that a lot throughout my career. Um, you know, when I was at museums in New York, we had interns as well, almost all of whom were also unpaid because that's just what we did at the time. And I'm still really close with a lot of them. In fact, one of them is an artist in our current show right now. And, you know, um, I've loved that she's developed this, uh, this practice after kind of taking a step away from it for a while. So anyway, I, I've always been passionate about it. Like I've never been this, a mentor that like did it, you know, quote unquote professionally. I wasn't like in like the boys and girls club or anything like that. I just knew that if I was going to do this in Boston, I wanted to create a generation of people who felt like this could be possible for them, but it could only be possible if you do pay them. And if you don't pay them, you're only going to get a certain type of person that's going to be able to work at your space. So the Pray Shadows Mentorship Program is for high school students in Boston area public or not public, but the ones we've hired have all come from public schools and, um, they work at the gallery, but they also have mentorship sessions with a professional curator, which culminates in uh, a group exhibition at the end of the summer. So our first year, uh, we were so happy to have Leah Triplett Harrington of now and there as our curatorial mentor. And then this year we had Jen Mergle, who was also, you know, we, we love Jen. She's incredible. And, the two mentees, um, have just, 
you know, they've developed a vocabulary for the way they talk about art. We had to give them like the training in some ways to think, you know, what, like, how do you develop a critical thinking, your critical thinking skills about art? How do you approach an artist? How do you ask them to be in a show? You know, how much time do you give them? Like even just the nitty gritty and the logistics. And then I often get questions like, what is, what does it mean to represent an artist? Or, you know, what's the commission breakdown between an artist? How do you make money? How do they make money? All of these questions that honestly, I feel like people who come out of MFA programs still don't know. (laughs) And so, you know, having this and giving it this experience to 17, 18 year olds, uh, our first mentee, one of our first mentees is now going to Sarah Lawrence college and she's going to be studying art. I wrote her college recommendation letter, you know, and on like on her application, she was like, I curated a show at Prey Shadows Art Gallery. And I think that's amazing. Like, and um, Randy, you were there at the last opening. I don't know if you caught it, but one of the mentees was like, I didn't know you could be 17 and curate a show at a gallery. (laughs) And, you know, the truth is most people don't think that's possible, but these, these two people did. And it's really, you know, I, I think if Boston is to have, a really vibrant uh, environment and space for um, not just artists, but curators, writers, you know, arts administrators, they have to feel that it's possible to even go into that career path. You know, my parents, like I said, are not in the arts. It's not that they weren't supportive. It's just that I was very much alone when I, you know, encountered this as a career. And it wasn't until I went to work at Sotheby's that they were like, oh, yeah, we know that name. Fancy, you know, and they would tell their friends about it. But there's so much more to the arts than working at an auction house, as we all know. And in fact, I think everyone should, you know, like explore that if they're interested in working in the arts. But it's something I I intend to do. And, you know, Jen, she got an email the other day from uh, somebody in another city saying like, we saw, you know, this mentorship program and we're really interested in that model and we would like to talk to you more. So it just felt really nice to know that like, you know, that model or that example is, um, is being watched and that people are interested to see how it could maybe affect their community as well. That's so insightful. And it's uh, really uh, imaginative that you were able to create something that is actually effective because I've had interns and all of them are probably disappointed by uh, their experience with me. (laughs) And and every internship I've ever done was terrible as well. So I think think you got the, you got the magic ingredients. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot of work for us as a gallery team. You know, I mean, sometimes you're like, oh, yes, that's right. This person is still 16 or 17. You know, we can't expect them to know these things or even these words sometimes, but they're incredibly smart. And, um, you know, the way we vet them, too, is is it's not easy. You know, they have to submit like a video. They have to go through an interview process. Um, and so we really try and make it work so that like, not only are they going to get a good experience, but that they are, you know, really major contributors and compliments to the gallery team as well. I guess I think I've gotten better at having interns and I have loved, loved, loved my interns over the years 
BCA pays its interns also, which I agree, super, super important to keep uh, young people coming in and keeping it a broad group who um, have access to this. So, but also just to say, I think it's, uh, there's a learning curve as a mentor of like figuring out what somebody's skill set and strengths are. Because I think one thing about a young person is they actually don't really realize yet maybe what's really special about them, like what they actually have to offer that was, they kind of think everybody maybe has the same things to offer. And I don't know, I, I love like working with people and trying to help them figure out, like you say, what, like, what is a path in this field that might be a good connection for them? What are they, are they the person who's going to design a killer show or are they actually going to be the marketer who's going to like turn the world like on its ear? So if I, I don't know, it's really fun. I really appreciate. And Oliver, I know you're really good at this too. You're being modest. <laughs> Uh, yeah, mentorship elements I've done more successfully than having like a, a rigid internship program. I yeah. think it's mainly because I don't have bandwidth. So I'm like <laughs> always trying to put out fires as a business owner. Yeah. yeah, it's really hard. You know, as a small business, sometimes you just, you know, you want to hire someone and just let them run with it because you don't really have time to, you know, tell them what to do all the time. You just expect them to um, be proactive and do the work. Um, and sometimes, you know, with, sometimes it, it's really effective if we give them a good project and they're able to just come in and they know exactly what to do. I mean, we also have college age interns as well, or as well as graduate school age interns. Uh, it just really depends right now. We actually don't have any interns. So, you know, we're, um, as a, again, as like a new small business, it's just all about like looking at the snapshot of where are we right now this season, this year, what do we need? And I just hired our second full-time person who actually was our very first intern at the gallery. And she graduated from BU recently. So I offered her a full-time job and actually, and she, this is Jaina, you know, she's running the art shop. Um, she's running us, you know, she's running our social media. And that's because the year that she spent with us as an intern, I saw what her skill sets were. And I remember saying to her, like, you're a really good designer. You have a great eye. You would be great as an art director, you know? And I, I don't know if she, maybe she did, but I don't know if she knew then like what an art director was. Mm -hmm. Um, but she was studying art and, you know, she perhaps still just wants to be a painter, but if someday, you know, um, a major ad company or some brand calls her up and says, you know, do you want to art direct our, our work or our business? And it's a good fit. Then, you know, that's another career path for somebody in the creative industry. You don't have to just be in the fine arts as well. Yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk with this time is flying by so quickly. Do you want to talk more about the art shop and what you're yeah. brand new? Yeah. So, um, when we first opened, the art shop was a small part of the gallery space. And um, then my wonderful landlord <laughs> offered me an adjacent space behind us, which is much smaller, but actually works perfectly. I actually, and Randy, I liked when you called it an annex. I think that's really perfect. So we just are, we're starting to, you know, kind of soft open it. It's open right now on Friday, Saturday, and Sundays. And um, it has art books. It has limited edition items that either we've made or that we carry from other brands. We have a ton of Gorilla Girls merch. And we also, you know, have done some books with our artists and those are mostly sold out, but we do have them there as well. I started the art shop and I real I decided that that would be an important part of the gallery because I know that this neighborhood is really 
good for shopping. And that um, the behavior of a lot of people who kind of just browse through Cold Corner is like, oh, you know, I'm 16 years old. I have $10, $20 in my pocket. I mean, I have a almost 13-year-old. You know, she spends a lot of her money at Buffalo Exchange across the street or at Booksmith or at CVS. They all love CVS. <laughs> if you go to CVS after school, it's just like full of preteens. But I had the exact same behavior, you know, when I was their age. Coolidge Corner, uh, next door to where the gallery is now, there used to be like a tobacco shop, but it sold like cheap little gifts and stuff, you know? So you would just go in and browse and sometimes you buy some things, sometimes you wouldn't. My whole intention of the art shop was, A, let's give people something more affordable to buy, and they could still feel like they're part of this ecosystem uh, in, in terms of being part of the gallery. And B, um, as a gallery, you just never know. You need to diversify your revenue streams. And by having this, you know, which is definitely more work for us, but it also means that like we are able to bring in revenue that is in addition to an art, uh, the art sales. Sometimes I'll have shows that are extremely challenging, meaning they're not like super market savvy or market friendly shows, but I care about them and I want to show them and I, I will put on this exhibition. And so I need to account for the fact that maybe the sales that month will not be that strong. And yet I will still have revenue from the art shop that we can count on to kind of balance out some of the losses perhaps from that month. But also like artists love to make, not all artists, but a lot of artists love to kind of dabble in that as well. And it's pretty easy for them. And, you know, it's not something that like we do most of the heavy lifting and then they either give us artwork to make something out of, or, um, you know, we carry something that they may already have, but it's, it's really, really great. It's super successful. Um, you know, we were closed yesterday, but people were like knocking on that door all day long asking to come in. And I had to tell them, you know, we weren't open right now. And the opening, the, that's really just a staffing thing. You know, I need to figure out again, like, do I pay someone to sit there all day on a Wednesday, Thursday, when like maybe two or three people will come in and shop? Or do we just tell them to come back Friday, Saturday, Sunday and or shop online? That's a hard one. But hopefully you're going to be able to support staffing it all week long, pretty soon. Yeah. I mean, eventually the two spaces will be conjoined. And so it'll be a lot easier to kind of move from one space to another. Um, we're just waiting for the Brookline, uh, what is it? Or, you know, the building inspectors to approve all of these plans and then we can make it happen. Sounds cool. Well, we're excited to have a selection of your artist books at the Boston Art Book Fair yes. taking place only a few weeks away now. So we're in like big run up mood to that and stuff. Mm -hmm. But I don't know. I love to hear this. We love mm -hmm. to talk about how books like just have so many different places in the art ecosystem. And I think yours is actually a pretty unique one. Is it? That's cool. That's nice to hear that. <laughs> Uh, well, we've had galleries involved in the Boston Art Book Fair since our very first one. And mm -hmm. even in the first one, I've kind of like had to think for a moment about what the participation was. But now we have galleries, we have museums, as well as like our little zine makers and mm -hmm. like way smaller operations. And no, I just books play a huge role in like yeah. how this information is 
how certain things are conveyed, how different, you know, ideas. Yeah, they're very important for an artist um, to be able to encapsulate their work or that exhibition. I mean, it's funny, I, I worked on the 2005 Greater New York exhibition at PS1. I, had, I was looking at the catalog, which is like a really thick book the other day, or not the other day, like a little a little while ago. And one of the artists that's in the book is now like living around the corner from the gallery. We have become friends, you know, she is Laurel Nakadate and she now teaches at Tufts and, you know, I see her all the time. Our kids go to the same school. And I was like, Laurel, we actually worked together. Like I did your show, but you know, and so then I showed my kids who now know Laurel. I was like, look, here's Laurel. This is 15, 17 years ago, but we have this, this beautiful book to be able to represent, um, the work that we did together. And then my name is in the book, her name is in the book. So it's just fun to see these connections, um, and, you know, to have that on record, but, um, but it's hard. I feel like books, you know, there are those of us who love these books. And then there are those of, there are many people who just go online and, you know, look for these resources online now. But I think, um, by having the option to, um, buy, you know, an artist book for like $20 or something like that. It's really nice to be able to have that and like, feel like you're supporting, you know, either this gallery or this artist. And we have a lot of, a lot of our books, if we can, you know, we have the artist come sign them or, you know, we, we have those signed copies available, which is even more, you know, exciting and special for people. Eugenie Tsai, the curator of the Brooklyn Museum, she came to the gallery last December and we had just ordered the Godzilla book, which is this amazing catalog of that art collective. And Eugenia was part of it. So she signed all of our copies, you know, and like, I don't think necessarily that she has signed other copies of the book. Perhaps she has, but anyway, we still have like one or two copies left if anybody's interested. So they're almost kind of like collector's items as well. Right. And that's what we want people to feel like they're a part of They They can uh, feel really proud to have this on their shelves. Yeah, I think, and you forget what a what a resource they are for artists too. I mean, I rarely do a studio visit where where an artist doesn't have catalogs and stuff open. I mean, that's also a way for that information to travel for people who are working out ideas or didn't get to the show or got to the show but wanted or like a record. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. Yeah, all kinds. Of, I don't know. I think there's um, the people do actually really engage with those and they engage with them very much physically, like as well as, you know, I mean, in a way that you can't with something that's just on the screen. So if I were a young artist, how (laughs) would I get your attention as an influential curator? Uh, That's a really good question. I was actually just talking about this this morning um, because we will be showing an artist soon. And, you know, he's based in Boston. He's been coming to the gallery very regularly, probably since we opened. And he and another artist who we also now represent, like they did it the right way. In my opinion, they came, they learned about us. They became friendly with us. You know, it was like, it was a, it was a gradual relationship that progressed and progressed and then evolved into deeper conversations, evolved into maybe I'll do a studio visit or would you like to come for a studio visit? I think that's, that to me is the nicest way to approach somebody who's interested in showing at a gallery. I, I know that we are not an anomaly in this, but our inbox, our, we have this general gallery inbox and every single day, it's just like, hi, here's my info. How do I show? Or, you know, um, I I mean, all sorts of variations of that. 
And I understand like you got to put yourself out there, but if you don't tell me like, why are you interested in my gallery? Why are we a good fit for you or vice versa? I really am going to just have to archive that email. Like we, there's no way we can respond to every single one of these. I used to try and, um, you know, every, after like, you know, the last year or so, I just realized we just don't have capacity to respond to this, um, this kind of volume. But I think the best way is to really engage on a level where like you get to know the program, you have conversations, um, you go to their events. And then, you know, if you feel like they, the gallery owner or the, the person working there, you know, if you guys like each other, then like, you'll want to hang out more. I mean, that really is in some ways for me, when I choose to work with an artist, I have to like them, obviously, right? Like that's my, that's my business. It's my choice who I want to work with. That's kind of the main perk of this. If, if, if you're someone who, you know, is toxic or just not the right kind of personality for me, I probably won't follow up or want to come hang out with you. But if it's clear that like we have a really good rapport and then I end up seeing your work, you know, because we follow each other on Instagram or something like that, but then, yeah, like I usually do say, can I have a, can we do a studio visit? Um, you know, I have been, I have needed to just like severely limit the, the studio visits I do because we do now have just so much on our plate. I get texts and emails and calls from my artists all the time, like, you know, actually when, <laughs> as this was happening, like one of the, one of the artists just called me and I'm sure I have to call them back because we have to create something and get them, you know, get their work somewhere. So it's, it's a full on thing and it doesn't just end at five or six o'clock, you know, like these, this job ends never. So if I'm going to spend all of this time and energy, which like a lot of this time and energy I should be spending with my family too. Right. So I need to be very selective and who I choose to bring into our world. I've also seen like, you know, and this is everywhere, but a lot of galleries will just like represent an artist all of a sudden, and they've never had a show with them, or they've, you know, never done a significant project together. And that's really not how I function. Like I need to have had some sort of, you know, significant exhibition or something where you and I have learned along the way that like, we can do this, you know, that like we have mutual respect, we have similar goals, or I understand your goals and I can help you fulfill some of these goals, then that's effective because I mean, this kind of goes back to the very beginning of this conversation where, you know, when I started Pray Shadows and some of these artists were represented, but their galleries really weren't even selling their work. They weren't even giving them shows, you know, and these are like, well-known spaces that like, you know, most artists would be honestly, a lot of artists are like, well, I know this gallery doesn't really do much, but it's good to have on my CV. But, um, and that's fine. But I also like, that's not how I want to function because if I'm going to put your name on our roster, you know, it's going to have to be like where we are working all the time to, you know, grow your practice, grow your market and, um, get you in museum shows, get you in museum collections. You know, that is very, very important to me. And if we're stalling, then it means that something's not right. Sorry. That was a long winded answer. <laughs> that was the, that was the answer everyone needed to hear though. That was, uh, yeah, that was exactly I would just, it. 
Yeah, I remember this group of college students um, came to came to the gallery earlier this year, and they were arts uh, like painting students or something. And I I kind of gave them this. I was like, look, this is a long career that you should have, you know, you should not expect to be famous next year. If you are going to be famous, then wonderful. But it could mean that in 10 years, no one cares about you or that, you know, your market has completely dropped. And that for me is kind of, that's almost why I'm interested. I work with a lot of, I would say like mid-career artists primarily now. Like I, I love emerging artists and I do work with a lot of emerging artists, but like the ones that I really work with, like Duke Riley, like Yuen Wu, like Yuri Shimojo, like these are artists who are like, you know, they've been doing it for decades and, um, they are, you know, a lot of them are coming into like really major projects and exhibitions, but they have been working super hard and I want to help them continue that momentum. But I also know that like, I think social media is very blinding for a lot of young artists because they see this success perhaps from some of their peers. Right. And they want that for themselves. But, um, I just have to say, you know, there's uh, the art market is very fickle and, um, you know, you, uh, right. Like I said, right now, certain genres of the art market are extremely hot, but you know, like 15 years ago, you couldn't sell to sell a figure to painting. So, let's see what happens in another 15 years or in five years, you know, it's, it's, it's going to continue to shift. And it's just, it's, it's a, it's, it's a cycle. I got one more question. Yeah. How do I figure out what's hot in the art market <laughs> at any given time? What are the resources that you check to be <laughs> able to say with confidence that figure paintings are blowing up? Like <laughs> you've never seen before. Wait, are you talking about as a collector or as a, as like a curator? Ah, good question. Either direction, because uh, mm. both sides, it's one side trading money to the other. Yeah, I mean, I would say, I think you really have to be like, okay, let's say you're a collector and a, like a, a devoted one, right? Like you really read up on stuff, you you follow certain artists or you're close with them. That is kind of the best way to know what's happening because sometimes when things are like reported in the market, you know, I'm not saying that's like jump the shark because things take time and they're slow, but like, like I remember going to Art Basel, Miami, you know, five or six years ago. And there was like this tiny, you know, couple, this older Caucasian couple. And they're like, Oh, Oh, let's go there. That's another black artist. And it was just so weird. I remember like doing a, you know, this like U-turn and I was like, wait, did they just say that? And, you know, and now, you know, we know that like artists of color are having this like really amazing moment. It's well-deserved. There's a correction in the market, but it doesn't mean that every single artist of color is going to survive this like really amazing market. Right. This is exactly what happened. I was at Sotheby's in like 2005 when the contemporary Chinese market was huge. I was actually working with antiquities. I like got so sick of the hot hotness of the contemporary market that I went to the old stuff. I was just like, let me work with things that are actually super valuable and that I want to learn from. But I was sitting adjacent to the Chinese contemporary market, which is all paintings from China or any artist, really like Asian artists, <laughs> were just like any Asian artists, we want to buy it all. And the catalog, I probably have it here. You know, they were like this thick, they were humongous. And 
really not that great for the majority. You know, like Wang Xiaogang, there was like Zhang Xiaogang, there were several artists that are still huge and are doing great. But then there were others where I was like, this is like, ugh, I can't believe people paid money for that. By the time I left Sotheby's, which was like three years later, that mark, that department in New York was gone. Like there was no contemporary Chinese department sale in New York anymore. And they consolidated all to Hong Kong. That is what I mean by like, it is very, very fickle. They're just going to, you know, especially with the auction houses, I would not follow auction house trends. That is probably my number one um, piece of advice because that is just like, oh, where this, where's this collector going? Where's this collector going? But they're not They're First of all, that's the secondary market, right? And then that isn't really indicative of like what an artist's practice is happening today and right now, or maybe like in two years when their show opens at a museum. Well, I got that down because I'm definitely not following any auction houses. So I'm, well, I'm and on top you're, of it. <laughs> you know, you're smart, you're in the know, but most people, when they read the news about art, what do they know? They only hear about these like, you know, immense prices that, um, are coming up for auction at Sotheby's and Christie's. And they they just have this assumption that all markets in the arts is like this when, you know, that's really not the case. I mean, I know we're like almost out of time, but you know, the other factor with the secondary market is that they're not set up to support the artist. If that artist is still living or if that artist is, um, you know, has an estate. So Prey Shadows is actually the first gallery to partner with this company called Fairchain. And, and we've been doing this, you know, now since Yuri Shimojo show, which is March, 2021, we build in secondary sales royalties to um, the artworks that we sell. We don't do it for every single show or every single artist, but it means that like, you know, Oliver, if you want to come and buy Duke Riley work from me, we're going to ask you if you would very seriously consider, you know, uh, signing this contract so that in the future, if you ever choose to sell it, there will be a percentage that goes back to the artist. Um, and that's really important to us. Duke Riley is actually like one of the partners of Fairchain. And, um, so it's kind of like in our DNA that this should be part of what ends up happening in the art world in the future. And that's a great use case for NFTs, right? Yeah. And we did anyway, that's a whole other conversation. We did NFTs as well, um, with Fairchain using, you know, we, we addition the oldest tattoos known to mankind and we worked with fair chain to actually, you guys will see this project at the art book fair. We'll have her digital tattoos available as well as the beautiful book that she made. I think I showed it to you, Randy. It's that like a uh, folded book. And, you know, she basically tattooed herself in her own blood to copy this mummy. Then that it was a 10 year long performance art piece. Like she kind of photographed herself as the, tattoos started to fade over time because her body was absorbing the blood. And we've taken that show now to New York, LA and London. And, you know, it's just this, it, it's really like buying a solid instruction drawing. You know, what you get is, um, this set of instructions. And then if you mess up or if you defy the instructions, then Nicole Wilson, the artist will cancel your sale and the edition. So it's really fun to develop. Like, that's what I mean. We're just like making stuff up, but, <laughs> but it's all like tethered to something art historical that, you know, we find important just to think about how art concepts can evolve and, and like still be interesting. Ning Ruchen, you're fascinating. We got we to gotta have another conversation with you just about uh, part two of that thought you just had. That's amazing. Yeah, I'll, it's it's a really awesome project. Um, Nicole Wilson is 
one of the most amazing artists that I've ever met. And you guys need to meet her someday. Actually, you guys should do a call with her. She's, um, and her book will be at the New York art book fair as well. All right. All right. Well, well that, there we go. We got our next guest. Uh, that yeah, was easy. I'm writing it down. That was a layup. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you so much, you guys. That was really fun. Went by fast. Yeah. Wonderful to talk to you. 